The Tom Woods Show, episode 1728. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy the Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education, history, economics, and more, the way it ought to be taught with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. We are covering some history today, and we're going to be talking about the history of the American presidency, at least the first part of a two-part series. Second part will be whenever the heck I feel like releasing it. I don't know when. Sometime. Stay tuned. But you're going to get plenty of it today, or plenty will be covered today. This is actually what I'm playing for you. This is taken from a seminar that I gave back when I was a, a mere pup of 29 years old. This was 19 years ago. 2001, the Mises Institute had me come give a week-long seminar on history, and here's one of the talks. Now, those of you who've listened to me for a while or attended one of my events or seen any of my YouTube videos, maybe you know that I have a certain public speaking style, and it's very relaxed and filled with humor and whatever, with a lot of content. I, I don't go up there and just stand there and do some, some fluff. It's not my style. But anyway, I try to be entertaining. In this academic setting, I'm a bit more subdued, so just so you know, <laughs> all right? So just expect that, a little bit more subdued. But we're going to talk about some key moments in the history of the presidency and in the thinking about the presidency to help us understand how we got to the present moment where we're, you know, we're just about to have another presidential election where you have, as usual, the various candidates seeming like messiah figures because the public has come to expect that. How'd that happen when you look at the fairly humble presidential office? How did it get to this point? So we're going to talk about that in today's episode. So enjoy. Here we go. Well, this morning begins the last day, of course, uh, of the seminar, which is probably just as well, since that's you know, what's left of me is prepared to talk to you today about the, the presidency, the U.S. presidency. And I deliberately made the title of the two sessions today broad enough that when the time came, I could treat whatever issues I found interesting at the time. And so today I'd like to start with a few general comments on the presidency and then talk about a particular villain in my telling of American history, Teddy Roosevelt, who was spared in the politically incorrect guide simply because of lack of space. So <laughs> we're going to rectify that oversight. <laughs> And secondly, to say something about presidential war powers, and that issue will spill over into the session this afternoon, because one of the claims that was occupied that office, and then Lou Rockwell continues, in my daydream, the president is mostly a figurehead and a symbol, almost invisible to myself and my community. He has no public wealth at his disposal. He administers no regulatory departments. He cannot tax us, send our children into foreign wars, pass out welfare to the rich or the poor, appoint judges to take away our rights of self-government, control a central bank that inflates the money supply and brings on the business cycle, or change the laws willy-nilly according to the special interests he likes or seeks to punish. His job is simply to oversee a tiny government with virtually no power except to arbitrate disputes among the states, which are the primary governmental units. He is head of state, though never head of government. 
His position, in fact, is one of constant subordination to the office holders around him and the thousands of statesmen on the state and local level. He adheres to a strict rule of law and is always aware that any time he transgresses by trying to expand his power, he will be impeached as a criminal. And then, so on. Then I like, I like this particular one. For those who do not vote and do not care about politics, their liberty is secure. They have no access to special rights, yet their rights to person, property, and self-government are never in doubt. For that reason and for all practical purposes, they can forget about the president, and for that matter, the rest of the federal government. It might as well not exist. People do not pay direct taxes to it. It doesn't tell them how to conduct their lives. It doesn't send them to foreign wars, regulate their schools, pay for their retirement, much less employ them to spy on their fellow citizens. The government is almost invisible. Now, of course, I've left out much of the best of this because it just goes on and on. Of course, I'd just like to make this my own speech. But the conclusion of these remarks is that this, of course, is precisely the model of the presidency that people at least thought they were getting with the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who is regarded, of course, as among the most astute foreign observers of the United States in the 19th century, if not the most astute, described the presidential office this way. Uh, the president is the executor of the laws, but he does not really cooperate in making them, since the refusal of his assent does not prevent their passage. He is not, therefore, a part of the sovereign power, but only its agent. The president is placed beside the legislature like an inferior independent power. The office of president of the United States is temporary, limited, and subordinate. When he is at the head of government, he has but little power, little wealth, little glory to share among his friends. And his influence in the state is too small for the success or the ruin of a faction to depend upon his elevation to power. The influence which the president exercises on public business is no doubt feeble and indirect. We can contrast this to more modern theories of the presidency particularly beginning in the progressive era, though certainly not without 19th century precedents. For example, in, in Lincoln, I, I think we see some precedents for an expansion of the presidency as well as in Andrew Jackson. But in looking over one of uh, Lou Rockwell's essays, I came across some passages from, from a book by Woodrow Wilson uh, that I'd, I'd forgotten about, that of course I did want to include in this, uh, that I, I made reference to several years ago in my when we had the History of Liberty conferences, I was quoting Woodrow Wilson, and these are some of the passages, or this is at least the, uh, the section that I, I use, because it's, it's fascinating. Woodrow Wilson, who's supposedly so different from Teddy Roosevelt, so different that the election of 1912 was one of the most momentous in American history, in effect gives voice to exactly the philosophy of the presidency as uh, that of Teddy Roosevelt. The big difference, by the way, in 1912, in the election of 1912, was that Theodore Roosevelt wanted to just regulate big business, whereas Woodrow Wilson wanted to break it up into little bits. That's basically the difference between them, the huge momentous difference between the two. And we're told that um, uh, we have this quotation from Woodrow Wilson in which he said that he himself can't quite see what the difference is between himself, Democrat Woodrow Wilson, and the Republicans at that time, other than the Republicans seemed to be more pro-tariff. Otherwise, he couldn't really see the difference. So already we have the, the, the phony choice. Well, here's Woodrow Wilson speaking about the U.S. presidency. There is something eerie about this. There can be no successful government without leadership or without the intimate, almost instinctive coordination of the organs of life and action. We have grown more and more from generation to generation to look to the president as the unifying force in our complex system. To do so is not inconsistent with the actual provisions of the Constitution. It is only inconsistent with a very mechanical theory of its meaning and intention. We're all just so darn mechanical. 
The president must be a man who understands his own day and the needs of the country, and who has the personality and the initiative to enforce his views both upon the people and upon Congress. He is the representative of no constituency but of the whole people. That's a key innovation. The country never feels the zest of action so much as when its president is, is of such insight and caliber. Its instinct is for unified action, and it craves a single leader. And then finally, let him once win the admiration and confidence of the country, and no other single force can withstand him. No combination of forces will easily overpower him. His position takes the imagination of the country. All right. Well, there you go. I mean, every but what? How many neoconservatives could object to that? And yet, there was a time when conservatives considered Woodrow Wilson to be the great Satan of the 20th century. But I don't see what they would have to object to about him today. That's exactly what they believe. Thomas Jefferson, of course, initiated the practice of delivering his State of the Union address through a written message to Congress, rather than appearing in all the with all the the ceremony before them. And so, the very idea. That on a day-to-day -day basis, we see footage on television of the president playing golf. Oh my goodness, the president is playing golf today. Wonder what his handicap is. Is exactly the opposite of how Jefferson would have thought of presidential office. Now, the Progressive Era is a period that I, I've discussed、uh, in the past here at the Institute. But one of the overlooked aspects of the Progressive Era is how it contributed to the expansion of the presidential office, both materially and philosophically. Uh, this is a it's a factor in the progressive era that's not typically mentioned in, in a textbook. The textbooks talk about muckraking journalists and regulatory agencies, and all those things are important. But at least as important is this expansion in the idea, the very idea of the presidency. And one of the people I think is largely responsible for this is is Teddy Roosevelt. And arguably, no president did more to institutionalize the activist presidency than Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt, as you, many of you know, became president after McKinley's assassination in 1901 and served two terms in that office. And he brought with him a thorough and consistent philosophy of the presidency. But yet, even apart from his philosophy of the presidency, we have the fact of Theodore Roosevelt's peculiar and celebrated personality.、And、that personality very much helped to place an, his imprint on the presidential office. He was someone who needed activity all the time. He needed to be engaged. In activity at all times, so I've cited Edward Corwin, who was a, was a scholar of the presidency, who has spoken of the personalization of the presidency, in which what he means is he's speaking about the way in which the unique character of a particular individual places an indelible imprint and an identifiable imprint on the presidential office. And so,、uh, for example, I've noted in the past that Mark Twain, who met the president twice. Later described him as quote clearly insane. <laughs> Roosevelt himself in 1884、uh, told a friend that he had a special cowboy suit that he would put on and had a revolver and a rifle and that when he had that special cowboy suit on quote I feel able to face anything.、Uh, he then went on and you know when, apparently when he did go down and, and fight in the Spanish American War in 1898. And he and he he managed to kill a Spaniard. He was just reacting with you know his just a hyster hysterical glee and joy, which was very much typical of his personality. When he was 20 years old and he had an argument with his girlfriend,、uh, he went home and shot and killed his neighbor's dog as as response to that. Now during the 1880s, he had this brief moment where he decided that he was just going to relax for a while. He'd been working very hard, 
And he wrote to a friend that because he'd been working so hard lately, he was going to just take the next month off and just do not a thing other than write a biography of Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> now, a famous quotation attributed to one of his sons is that, quote, father always wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> so a presidential historian has summed up this aspect of Roosevelt. As no president in memory, and probably none up to that time, T.R. became a personality, a politician whose every action seemed newsworthy and exciting. His family, his friends, his guests, his large teeth, his thick glasses, his big game hunting, and his horseback riding, all were sources of media attention and delight. In a way that Washington and Lincoln had not done, and even Jackson avoided, T.R. became a very visible tribune of the people, a popular advocate whose personality seemed immediate, direct, and committed to their personal service. Now, when I say that he's someone who needs constant activity, it shouldn't be surprising, therefore, that when he becomes president, he wants to involve himself as president in even the tiniest affairs of the nation. So I've spoken in the past of a conference that was held in uh, 1903 at the White House over the question of excessively rough play in college football and what could the president help to do about this. Now, of course, on the face of it, it's fairly well absurd that the U.S. president would need to intervene here and that the normal channels of civil society couldn't take care of this terrible crisis uh, on their own. But this is, a, this is, I think, a foreshadowing of the future where, where the president seems to be, of course, involved in, every, in, in everything and no one even bats an eye about this. If there's something unusual or bizarre or flagrantly unnecessary about it. Now, what exactly, uh, what exactly is Roosevelt's, uh, Roosevelt's philosophy of the presidency? Well, I identify three planks to it. The first plank is one that, in effect, he shares with Andrew Jackson. This is a theory that Andrew Jackson had put forward and that you can read in Woodrow Wilson's pre-presidential writings as well, is that the president, by virtue of having been elected by the nation as a whole, possesses a unique claim to be the representative of the entire American people in the aggregate. So unlike congressmen, who of course are elected only by their own districts or Senate senators elected by their uh, people of their states, the president is elected by the whole people. So he has this special claim, he argues. Now this is a claim that Andrew Jackson had tried to make, but at that time there were people like John C. Calhoun who argued that of course, there, in effect, there is no such thing in the original understanding as an American people. There's the people of Massachusetts, people of Vermont, the people of the states. And so the idea that there was one figure, figure who represented the will of this single American people collapsed into a single aggregate was utterly foreign to the American constitutional order. But the president now, under, uh, beginning with this philosophy of TR, draws conclusions from this. If I am the unique representative of the American people then it's my responsibility to see that their will is put into effect. And so I therefore, in effect, have a moral and sort of quasi-legal ability to override whatever obstacle uh, should appear in my path, even if that should be a congressional obstacle. I will override that because, after all, I have to vindicate the will of the people. The second plank that you notice about Franklin, uh, about, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, there's a slip, but, you know, tomato, tomato, I suppose. Um, the second plank is his view that the president, in effect, can do anything that the needs of the nation demanded, those are his uh, words, unless it is prohibited in the Constitution. 
Now, the, the older way of looking at things is that you can do things if they're stated in the Constitution, but you can only do them if they're stated. Now we have this view that you can do them as long as it's not stated that you can't. Well, of course, obviously, there are infinite things that are, are not stated in the Constitution. I mean, no one would say you, know, you can't you know, run a house of ill repute out of the White House. It's not in the Constitution, but it would be sort of presumed. But according to, to TR, the president can do anything the nation demanded unless it's prohibited by the Constitution. And he said himself, under this interpretation of executive power, I did and caused to be done many things not previously done. I did not usurp power, but I did greatly broaden the use of executive power. Uh, he said uh, on another, uh, another occasion, he said, in the United States, this is, this is a comment he made privately, as in any nation which amounts to anything, those in the end must govern who are willing actually to do the work of governing. And insofar as the Senate becomes a merely obstructionist body, it will run the risk of seeing its power pass into other hands. Hmm. Well, gee, what, which hands are those, I wonder? Well, the third plank involves the use of executive orders. And I should pause here for a moment because this, this reminds me of a more recent example. If you ask conservatives today what their opinion of Teddy Roosevelt is, it's usually quite positive. You know, they like him. And you know, there are some aspects of him that are kind of cute and admirable, I suppose. I mean, he would make funny comments about not being a globalist and anyone who thinks other countries are as good as his own or like people who say that other women are they love as much as their own wife and ha 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 that's cute and everything but but the thing is that i'm arguing that that tr has you know d did a tremendous amount of damage to the country it's not at all obvious why a conservative would like him other than the fact that he wasn't a sort of mamby pamby modern day you know girly man and so we naturally respect anybody who just is in any way virile, I guess that may be what they admire in him. But the one way that you can get through to conservatives on this issue is through the Bill Clinton angle. Because Bill Clinton has got this, it's all, you know, this, there's still Bill Clinton books coming out, people buying him like mad, and he's been out of office for years, he's still getting attacked. Well, Bill Clinton was once asked, who is your favorite Republican president throughout all of American history? Who's your favorite Republican president? He said, Theodore Roosevelt. So now you use that when you pull that out and say, hey, come on now, Bill Clinton likes him. Then they'll have to say, oh my gosh, I, my whole world view is collapsing. My brain is just smokes coming out of my ears. I, I can't compute this. And I don't think it's a coincidence that TR is mentioned as Bill Clinton's favorite Republican president. And the third plank of his presidential philosophy involves the use of executive orders. Because it was Bill Clinton's aide, Paul Begala, when speaking of presidential uh, executive orders, actually said in the 1990s, stroke of the pen, law of the land, kind of cool. Yeah, kind of unconstitutional, not that you would care. <laughs> well, Theodore Roosevelt was, in fact, a figure who he wasn't the first person to issue executive orders, but he issued them in numbers that were substantially greater than those uh, who preceded him. Now, an executive order just simply means that it's a, it's a presidential measure that's taken by the president himself by virtue of his executive authority, which he does, which he undertakes without consulting Congress or feeling a need to consult Congress. Now, there are uses of executive orders that would be unobjectionable from any standpoint. For example, George Washington, when he took office as president, requested that the outgoing government prepare a report on the state of the country, and he did that by, in effect, executive order. I mean, nobody really has a moral problem with that or after the war between the states. 
or in other situations, the president can issue presidential pardons. And he can do that by virtue of his own executive authority. So there are certain things that the president can do by means of an executive order that really are basically unobjectionable. The problem becomes that the, the possibility that, that executive orders can be abused. What if the president uses an executive order to carry out something that clearly lay within the province of Congress? What if he becomes a lawmaker in and of, just, just by himself, by virtue of just signing executive orders? This obviously disrupts the normal constitutional process. This is a, a usurpation of power. It violates the original understanding. And in fact, as early as the 1790s, we already see controversy about what they, they wouldn't have used the term executive orders. But we already see controversy emerging over the president's use of his executive power. When George Washington declared the United States neutral in 1793 in the wars of the French Revolution. And that seems harmless enough and perhaps even a wise policy. But the point was that the Congress argued that the president in and of himself does not have the authority to declare neutrality. The Congress would declare neutrality, which they, in fact, they retroactively gave their assent to what Washington had done by themselves going on and declaring neutrality. But even there, there was already enough vigilance that people were concerned that this was an abuse of presidential power. And when I get into presidential war powers, I want to return to that issue. Uh, so, so already there was some controversy. Uh, well, to appreciate the extent to which Theodore Roosevelt transforms the presidential office, we need to look at his use of executive orders. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that he should want to use them, because here's his governing style in a nutshell. My will be done. But of course, my will is the people's will. Don't ever forget that. It's the people's will. Well, consider the numbers. Now, there's a, I, I cite in my, my book, in the bibliography, there's a citation to a Cato Institute study on the use of executive orders. And yet, in the book, there's no reference to executive orders, really, or hardly any. Uh, and that's because the bibliography was done before we had to start cutting material for space reasons. So there are articles and books in there that have no connection to anything in the whole book. And so this article, the, you can find the citation in there, but there's not a word about it in the, in the book. It's in the, it's in the, the hacked chapter. Well, when you look at the number of executive orders issued by Theodore Roosevelt's predecessors and then by the man himself, President Hayes issued no executive orders. Likewise, for President Garfield, although he wasn't you know, really alive long enough to issue many executive orders, but Chester A. Arthur issued three executive orders, six for Grover Cleveland in his first term, four for Benjamin Harrison. Second term, Cleveland issued 71. McKinley issued 51. Theodore Roosevelt issued 1,006. Now, all right, so he did serve nearly two terms. But nevertheless, what we're seeing here is not merely a quantitative difference, but a qualitative shift in the functioning of the executive office. Now, I've often given as an example of President Roosevelt's use of executive power what he did in the Dominican Republic in early 1905. And the other day I was looking through Edmund Morris's book on, or most recent volume on Theodore Roosevelt called Theodore Rex. And it's basically got every little detail of this guy's life. I mean, my gosh. And then, you know, his shoe got a tear in it and he decided to get a new one. And it's incredible. Like, why we would, I mean, that, and it's the fact that we would write that detailed a book is itself a reflection of this deification of the, of the, the president. It's incredibly disturbing and eerie, as I say. But in that book, there's not, I mean, it's a, he's got all the time in the world to tell you about every haircut the guy got, you know, whatever. 
But nothing, not a word, not a sentence, nothing about this. Yes, there is mention of Theodore Roosevelt and the Dominican Republic, but nothing about how he did what he did. The, the, the nutshell story goes as follows. In late 1904, Roosevelt, in effect, uh, laid out what he called the Roosevelt Car, what was, became known as the Roosevelt Carlary to the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine from 1833 had made clear that while the United States was not going to inter intervene in European affairs, it expected European powers to reciprocate and that European powers should not intervene in our hemisphere because this was this would be considered a security risk to the U.S. if there were European colonization going on in the Americas. Well, what Theodore Roosevelt did with his corollary was to say, well, if it seems as if there's going to be European intervention in our hemisphere, then the United States will intervene first so as to forestall the European intervention. And so this, this doctrine is first instantiated in the case of the Dominican Republic in early 1905, because in the Dominican Republic, they were in debt up to their ears, and there was concern on the part of, of uh, Roosevelt that at least one European power may use force and intervene in the Dominican Republic for the sake of the collection of debts. So TR came up with the idea that the United States should intervene in the Dominican Republic and run the customs houses and, in effect, take some of the customs money and, and use it for domestic purposes in the Dominican Republic, but take a fixed amount and apply it to debt repayment, so as to reassure European creditors that uh, you know their debts you know would in fact be repaid. Well, he, of course, is is going to want to establish a treaty to this effect with the Dominican Republic. But you can't establish a treaty as president. You can't establish a treaty just on your own, you know, ipsa dixit. It has to be done with the with uh, you know, the Senate has to uh, has to approve it. But it looked as if for a while. Uh, at least several days, it looked as if Roosevelt was just going to go ahead and enforce this treaty without consulting the Senate at all, until a bunch of senators finally said, wait a minute, you are going to submit this to our vote, right? I mean, remember the, remember the Constitution? You know, I mean, you are going to do this. And so that was in the days when, you know, when the Senate actually cared about its, its, its prerogatives. And so finally, you know, very frustrated, Roosevelt, okay, fine. You know, go ahead and vote on it if you feel you must. But it's interesting that it's quite clear that he had not originally intended the Senate to have any voice in this because it was set to take effect like about 11 days after they signed it. There's not, I mean, no, needless to say, nowhere near enough time uh, for there to be debate, discussion, everybody to read it, whatever. But finally, the Senate did force his hand, and so he submitted it to them. Well, the Senate ended up adjourning without taking any action at all on the matter. And so what did Theodore Roosevelt do? Well, he's frustrated by the Senate's inaction. So he simply declares that, all right, well, maybe you're right. It is a treaty. And so you know, I can't just impose a treaty on both countries without the consent of the Senate. I haven't gotten the consent of the Senate, so I just won't call it a treaty. I'll call it an executive agreement, and that the authority to enact it just develops, comes right out of my inherent executive powers. And that's what he did. He said in his autobiography, I went ahead and administered the proposed treaty anyhow, considering it as a simple agreement on the part of the executive, which could be converted into a treaty whenever the Senate acted. So if the Senate later, you know, feels like ratifying what I've done, that's fine. But in the meantime, I'm going to act as if it already exists. And he says, I would have continued it to the end of my term, if necessary, without any action by Congress. Now that, to me, if you're going to write a 900-page book on, on Roosevelt, that would deserve at least, you know, a, a third of a page, right? I mean, doesn't that say something about the way the man governed? Not a word. Not a word on that. But there it is. There's the Dominican, the, the case of the Dominican Republic shows the use of 
presidential power, I think, uh, very, very vividly and starkly. Now, as he looked back on his years in office, Roosevelt told his son, I have been a full president right up to the end, and that he had seized all the powers that he thought were inherent in the office and expanded those powers so that his successors would have much greater latitude. And he certainly was a full president, if by that you mean that he really did take every opportunity to expand the presidential office, not only in this case of the Dominican Republic, but also in other episodes. The United Mine Workers strike, for example, in 1902 involved unionized mine workers who were striking over. They wanted their union recognized. They wanted uh, higher wages. They wanted uh, fewer working hours. And there was an impasse between the mine owners and the, and the miners. And as the months progressed, Theodore Roosevelt finally intervened and said that he was going to impose arbitration on the two sides. And he was very upset at the, at the, the mine owners. And in effect, he said that if the mine owners do not agree finally on, so, on some arrangement with the miners, that Theodore Roosevelt would seize the, the, the uh, would basically seize the, the, the coal uh, fields and, 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 uh, and run them with the army. Have the, have the army actually get the coal and, and carry out the function uh, and in effect act as the owners of, of, uh, of all the, the coal deposits. And this is sort of a surprising statement to make. And so someone said, are you sure that you have the right to seize all the U.S. coal like this with the army? I mean, what, what, what constitutional provision do you think empowers you to do that? He said that uh, to hell with the Constitution when the people want coal. So if I want to grab the coal mines, I'll do it. Because to hell with the Constitution when the people want coal, that's Theodore Roosevelt's presidential office in action. There it is. I have to do the will of the people. I'm the exclusive representative of the American people. Now, an often forgotten episode in, in Theodore Roosevelt's presidency, again, illustrates something about the nature of the man and what he was doing to the office. And that's something called the Perdicaris Affair, which took place in 1904 as the Republican convention was set to renominate uh, Theodore Roosevelt for a second term. Well, it involved a gentleman named Perdicaris, who apparently the situation was that uh, he, he was... He was being held captive in, uh, oh gosh, I, I, was it Tripoli? I can't, it's, it's in, in North Africa. He's being held captive. And supposedly he was an American citizen being held captive by a foreign government. So Theodore Roosevelt comes out at the convention and he gets everybody riled up by, by making a, a very, very belligerent speech about the need to go get this man back and we'll do whatever we have to do. And, and you know, if we have to kill the leaders over there, we'll do it. Everybody's thrilled. Well, it so happens that there are two factors that T.R. was not mentioning in his speech. Number one, Perdicaris was not an American citizen. He was a Greek citizen. He he had taken Greek citizenship for business reasons. Secondly, arrangements had already been made to free him at the time of Roosevelt's speech. And Roosevelt knew both of these facts and yet nevertheless went ahead and did that, whipping the country into a jingoistic frenzy. Well, very significant. Okay, very significant. There's, there's a little bit of an overview of Theodore Roosevelt. I think we can see the significance of that. Now, I think also Theodore Roosevelt would be, would be somebody who, although during his terms in office, with the exception of the suppression of Filipino independence and his shenanigans regarding the Panama Canal, he was not nearly as belligerent in office as he was out of office. Before he got in office, Theodore Roosevelt was constantly making statements like, this country needs a good war. He made a statement once in which he said that 
you know, we could use a good war with Germany because that would make German Americans, would force them into making ostentatiously patriotic displays of anger against Germany. And plus, if New York and a few of our other cities on the, if cities on the coast like Boston or others were just, were burned to the ground by a foreign invader, well, that would be a good object lesson to the American people uh, in the need for a good system of coast defenses. I mean, he actually did say that. These are kind of odd statements. Well, then after he leaves the presidency, he's, you know, he's fanatically in favor of getting involved in World War I, like immediately, as, as quickly as possible, when he wants to get right into it. And you can imagine that he would be somebody who would be very impatient with a very traditional understanding of presidential war powers. And that's another issue that I think is worth discussing, because, you know, I'm of the opinion that given that American law, I think, makes quite clear, American constitutional law, that the initiative with regard to foreign policy obviously belongs in the hands of Congress, uh, and that Congress is, I think, for reasons that we might discuss, less likely to embroil the nation in war. Well, given our current predicament, I think it's more and more necessary to talk about this history and what was the original intent and how in American history have war powers been exercised, both by Congress and by the president. Not because I actually expect a future president to say, you know what, I really need to restrain myself here. You know, I really don't have the authority to deploy troops anywhere I want. And what kind of a mental case am I? And I suddenly have a great reverence for the Constitution. I don't expect that to happen. But we can at least shame. Well, no, we can't shame them. What am I saying? They have no shame. <laughs> but we can at least at least let our fellow Americans know that, you know, these people have complete contempt for the Constitution. They have complete contempt for the law. And, you know, that's at least something. I mean, it helps to undermine their legitimacy. And that's, you know, can't shake a stick at that. Well, let's look at what the Constitution says on the matter of war. Now, it's true that the, the president is, under the Constitution, declared to be the commander-in-chief. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, we know from, from endless commentaries by the framers of the Constitution and by people in the ratifying conventions that what's understood here is that the Congress has the power to declare war and the president, according to Alexander Hamilton, these are his words, uh, the president would have, quote, the direction of war when authorized or begun. I always like to quote Hamilton whenever possible because you can always, you always proceed that with, even Alexander Hamilton said, okay, well, even he said, the president's power is restricted to the direction of war when authorized or begun. Now, the, the, the Constitution did not, in fact, say Congress has the power to make war. It said power, Congress has the power to declare war. And the difference was understood to mean this, that the president was, in fact, empowered to repel sudden invasions of the United States. And that would be very different from you know, Iran nationalized an American company, therefore the president has to go to war with them. That's not exactly a full-scale assault on the American, on American soil. This is meant to be understood that in an emergency situation, the president could repel a sudden attack. But of course you recall that the Pearl Harbor attack was fairly sudden to most of the American population, and yet the next day they were able to have a congressional declaration of war even in that circumstance. But overwhelming legal precedent dating from the earliest years of the Republic supports this interpretation. Now, I'm not one very often to quote Abraham Lincoln, but on this issue, at least prior to the 1860s, he's quite sound. Uh, Lincoln said this. I mean, Lincoln is speaking, by the way, during the, uh, you know, at the time of the Mexican War, uh, during his one, his one uh, fairly undistinguished term in Congress. He says, 
allow the president to invade a neighboring nation whenever he shall deem it necessary to repel an invasion, and you allow him to do so whenever he may choose to say he deems it necessary for such purpose, and you allow him to make war at pleasure. And then he went on. The provision of the Constitution giving the war-making power to Congress was dictated, as I understand it, by the following reasons. Kings had always been involving and impoverishing their people in wars, pretending generally, if not always, that the good of the people was the object. This our convention understood to be the most oppressive of all kingly oppressions, and they resolved to so frame the Constitution that no one man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us. But your view, speaking to an antagonist, destroys the whole matter and places our president where kings have always stood. Now, the, the framers of the Constitution were abundantly clear in assigning to Congress what one scholar has called senior status in a partnership with the president for the purpose of conducting foreign policy. So when you consider what the Constitution has to say about foreign affairs, it says as follows. Congress possesses the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, to raise and support armies, to grant letters of mark and reprisal, to provide for the common defense, and even to declare war. Congress shares with the president the power to make treaties and to appoint ambassadors. As for the president himself, he is assigned only two powers relating to foreign affairs. He is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and he has the power to receive ambassadors. At the Constitutional Convention, the delegates expressly disclaimed any intention to model the American executive after the British monarchy. James Wilson, for example, remarked that the powers of the British king did not constitute, quote, a proper guide in defining the executive powers. Some of these prerogatives were of a legislative nature, among others that of war and peace. Edmund Randolph likewise contended that the delegates had, quote, no motive to be governed by the British government as our prototype. To repose such foreign policy authority in the legislative rather than the executive branch of government was a deliberate and dramatic break with the British model of government with which they were most familiar, as, with, as well as with that of of other nations, where the executive branch, in effect the monarch, possessed all such rights, including the exclusive right to declare war. The framers of the Constitution believed that history amply testified to the executive's penchant for war. As James Madison wrote to Thomas Jefferson, the Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature. Now, at the Constitutional Convention, Pierce Butler supported vesting the power of declaring war in the hands of the president. Well, that opinion stunned uh, the other delegates, particularly Elbridge Gerry, who said, quote, he never expected to hear in a republic a motion to empower the executive alone to declare war. Not only was there no support for Butler's position, there wasn't even a second. No one even seconded it when he proposed that this power should be held by the president. At the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, James Wilson said this, This system will not hurry us into war. It is calculated to guard against it. It will not be in the power of a single man or a single body of men to involve us in such distress. For the important power of declaring war is vested in the legislature at large. This declaration must be made with the concurrence of the House of Representatives. From this circumstance, we may draw a certain conclusion that nothing but our interest can draw us into war. By the way, I should mention that uh, a book by Louis, uh, Louis Fisher called uh, 
Presidential War Power is the indispensable single book on this if you're going to read only one. Now, Alexander Hamilton, or shall I say, even Alexander Hamilton, says in Federalist Number 69 that the president's authority, quote, would be nominally the same with that of the king of Great Britain, but in substance much inferior to it. It would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces as first general and admiral of the Confederacy, while that of the British king extends to the declaring of war and to the raising and regulating of fleets and armies, all of which by the Constitution under consideration would appertain to the legislature. John Bassett Moore was a great scholar of international law who briefly served as assistant secretary of state and later as a professor at Columbia University. He was a prolific author who was also the first American judge at the world court. And he said this, there can hardly be room for doubt that the framers of the Constitution, when they vested in Congress the power to declare war, never imagined that they were leaving it to the executive to use the military and naval forces of the United States all over the world for the purpose of actually coercing other nations, occupying their territory, and killing their soldiers and citizens, all according to his own notions of the fitness of things, as long as he refrained from calling his action war or persisted in calling it peace. Now, in the history of the early republic, the intentions of the framers in this regard were by and large respected. For example, George Washington, in his operations on his own authority against various Indian tribes, he confined himself to defensive measures only and understood that the permission of Congress would be necessary for any further action. And Washington himself said, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war with Congress. Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they have deliberated upon the subject and authorized such a measure. Now, I think it was probably with both the Korean War starting in 1950 and then the, the Vietnam War as it heated up in the 1960s, that we begin to hear an alternative conception, or we begin to hear that uh, this is much too strict a reading, what I've, what I've told you is much too strict a reading of the historical record, and that in fact, historically, the presidents have been much more flexible. And so, for example, the State Department in 1966, you know, an, an impartial body, you know, that could be counted on to give us a, a, a dispassionate overview of this matter, said, since the Constitution was adopted, there have been at least 125 instances in which the president has ordered the armed forces to take action or maintain positions abroad without obtaining prior congressional authorization, starting with the undeclared war with France, 1798 to 1800. Well, we'll have time later, probably this afternoon, to get into this, so this 125 instances. That 125 instances in, in more recently has turned into hundreds of instances um, as I say, there was one particular critic of mine who used the phrase hundreds of instances. It's sort of like the number of people that the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki allegedly saved. So first, you know, you have estimates of 46,000. And then later, uh, President George H.W. Bush was saying that millions of lives had been saved by that. I mean, what that he just said that with no no support for it at all. And so eventually we start to get this claim. There are hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Well, I'm going to try to go through in chronological order. And in particular, I use this quotation right here because it makes specific mention of the quasi-war with France. And it says that, you know, this was done without uh, prior congressional authorization. That's just not true at all. There was a congressional statute after statute after statute authorizing Adams to do what he did uh, in you know, outfitting ships and in, in engaging in this, and Adams was simply following 
those statutes. An interesting quotation from that comes even from Alexander Hamilton comes in late April 1978, uh, pardon me, 1798, when Congress passed a law increasing the size of the Navy. And the Secretary of War, who seemed to favor war, asked Alexander Hamilton, Did you think, do you think this legislation authorizes the president to initiate hostilities? And Hamilton replied by saying this, Not having seen the law which provides the naval armament, I cannot tell whether it gives any new power to the president, that is, any power whatever with regard to the employment of the ships. If not, and he is left at the foot of the Constitution, as I understand to be the case. I am not ready to say that he has any other power than merely to employ the ships as convoys with authority to repel force by force, but not to capture, and to repress hostilities within our waters, including a marine league from our coasts. Anything beyond this must fall under the idea of reprisals and requires the sanctions of that department which is to declare or make war. So, in effect, speaking of Congress. In the wake of the quasi-war, the Supreme Court ruled that under the Constitution, the Congress could declare war, because, of course, it says that Congress can declare war. The Congress can also give its authorization to hostilities that would not quite come up to the definition of a full-scale war. They could, by statute, authorize lesser hostilities in lesser wars. And, in effect, that was what happened in the quasi-war. But here's something interesting that occurred during the quasi-war. Congress, at one point, authorized the president to seize vessels that were sailing to French ports. But Adams, without consulting the Congress and entirely on his own authority, began to instruct American ship captains to capture vessels that were sailing to or from French ports. And so we had this interesting case of a Captain George Little who obeyed the president and, in fact, seized a ship that was sailing from a French port. It was a Danish ship sailing from a French port, and he was, he was sued for damages, and eventually the case made its way to the Supreme Court. And there, John Marshall, who over time flip-flopped on this issue. I'm sorry, I hate that term. Sorry, forget that. Forget I said that. But John Marshall, John Marshall ruled that Captain George Little could be sued for damages because he should not have followed a command of the president that was not authorized by congressional statute. John Marshall says, I acquiesce in the opinion of my brethren, which is that the instructions by President Adams cannot change the nature of the transaction or legalize an act which, without those instructions, would have been a plain trespass. Now, Congress later reimbursed Captain Little for because he'd had to pay damages. They reimbursed him for it, in effect saying, well, he was just obeying orders. But as Fisher points out, this means that congressional policy announced in a statute necessarily prevails over inconsistent presidential orders and military actions. Presidential orders, even those issues issued as commander-in-chief, are subject to restrictions imposed by Congress. Now, then we have George Washington. I'm backing up a little bit. I, I mentioned uh, earlier on that there was a little bit of a controversy when George Washington issued his proclamation of neutrality because he had no statutory or constitutional authority to issue a proclamation of, of neutrality. And even though it seems innocuous enough, there was a concern about the separation of powers. In fact, James Madison took this position against George Washington and said this, In no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than in the clause which confides the question of war and peace to the legislature and not to the executive department. War is in fact the true nurse of executive aggrandizement. 
In war, a physical force is to be created, and it is the executive will which is to direct it. In war, the public treasures are to be unlocked, and it is the executive hand which is to dispense them. In war, the honors and emoluments of office are to be multiplied, and it is the executive patronage under which they are to be enjoyed. It is in war, finally, that laurels are to be gathered, and it is the executive brow they are to encircle. Hence, it has grown into an axiom that the executive is the department of power most distinguished by its propensity to war. Hence, it is the practice of all states, in proportion as they are free, to disarm this propensity of its influence. And so even, even the use of a proclamation of neutrality is an example of potential executive encroachment on congressional prerogatives. Well, here we have yet another exa uh, interesting example. I think that George Little example is quite revealing. But we have another example. We have an example of an American who disregarded George Washington's proclamation of neutrality uh, and, in fact, violated the proclamation. Because, I mean, there were, there were Americans who, in the 1790s, were, you know, were capturing ships and whatever. A fellow named Gideon Henfield was prosecuted for violating Washington's proclamation of neutrality. But he was acquitted, even though he clearly was guilty. He was acquitted. Why? Because the jurors did not like the idea of convicting someone of a crime that had been established simply by executive proclamation. If, if there was no statutory authority behind that executive proclamation, then we have no basis on which to convict this man. Ah, back when we had liberty-loving Americans who, you know, sitting on juries. Not that I think Gideon Henfield was anybody to write home about, but it's quite an interesting point that they made. Now, Congress, as I said, later did declare neutrality. And so, you know, in effect, it was undertaken in, in, any, in any event. That, by the way, is a big problem with executive orders, is that oftentimes the president will issue one, Congress won't like it at all. But then, you know, retroactively, they'll give it their authorization by voting in favor of whatever the measure is. And so you're only encouraging him, unfortunately. Now, what we hear, I think, the most common case that we hear in early American history of a president who is, in fact, involving the country in war in the absence of congressional authorization to do so, involves Thomas Jefferson and his activity with regard to the Barbary pirates. And just a little uh, background here. Uh, the, the Barbary states of North Africa were, in effect, engaged in piracy for a very long time. And so if you, if you had ships sailing the Mediterranean, you would, in effect, have to bribe them into leaving your shipping alone. Now, during the colonial period, the British government paid the bribes on, on behalf of Americans. In the early republic, very early, George Washington just paid the bribes. John Adams just paid the bribes. Well, then you get to the early 1800s. Jefferson is not terribly enthusiastic about paying the bribes. And by late 1801, uh, some of the Barbary pirates are, in fact, increasing the, uh, the, the amount of the bribe that would be necessary. And eventually, they actually declare war on the United States. Well, immediately, bef immediately prior to Jefferson's inauguration, Congress had passed legislation that, among other things, provided for six frigates that, to, to quote the, the legislation, shall be officered and manned as the President of the United States may direct. And so when Jefferson sent American ships to the Mediterranean, he was appealing to this. He said, well, they, these ships shall be officered and manned as I may direct. Now, uh, Jefferson, so he sends, a, he sends a small force to the, to the area, uh, to the Mediterranean, to protect against any possible aggression on American ships and citizens. But, but Jefferson, and we can, we can agree or disagree with that position, but it's interesting to note what Jefferson says here to show that this incident cannot be used to show that there's a general power for the president to initiate 
uh, offensive military action on his own whim. Jefferson said that he was, quote, unauthorized by the Constitution without the sanction of Congress to go beyond the line of defense. He said that Congress alone could authorize, quote, measures of offense also. And so Jefferson went to Congress and said, I communicate all material information on this subject, that in the exercise of this important function confided by the Constitution to the legislature exclusively, their judgment may form itself on a knowledge and consideration of every circumstance of weight. Now, Fisher points out that the Justice Department very often has made reports and in congressional debate issued statements to the effect that Jefferson, in fact, uh, just again behaved entirely on his own uh, without really any regard for congressional authority. But Fisher says, in fact, in at least 10 statutes, Congress explicitly authorized military action by Presidents Jefferson and Madison. Congress passed legislation in 1802 to authorize the president to equip armed vessels to protect commerce and seamen in the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, and adjoining seas. The statute authorized American ships to seize vessels belonging to the Bay of Tripoli with the captured property distributed to those who brought the vessels into port. Additional legislation in 1804 gave explicit support for, quote, warlike operations against the regency of Tripoli or any other of the Barbary powers, unquote. Now, understand the purpose of my bringing this up. It's not to say this is a wonderful decision, it should have been done, but simply to say that in no way can you extrapolate from this to some general ability of the president to deploy American forces anywhere in the world for any purpose. Jefferson, by modern standards, was positively timid uh, in, in, his, in his behavior. In fact, late the next year, in, in late 1805, there had uh, emerged a dispute with Spain regarding the boundaries of Louisiana and Florida. And Jefferson went to Congress and reported on that and said that uh, it was his opinion that Spain uh, revealed, quote, an intention to advance on our possessions until they shall be repressed by an opposing force. Considering that Congress alone is constitutionally invested with the, with the power of changing our condition from peace to war, I have thought it my duty to await their authority for using force. But the course to be pursued will require the command of means which it belongs to Congress exclusively to yield or to deny. To them I communicate every fact material for their information and the documents necessary to enable them to judge for themselves. To their wisdom, then, I look for the course I am to pursue and will pursue with sincere zeal that which they, they shall approve." Okay, again, this is like a, a, another, another planet, basically, this, this, type of, this type of language. A couple of more quick ones before we stop and take some questions. And then I think the really interesting stuff uh, actually comes, comes later. I mean, how do we get to the, the present situation? At the time of the War of 1812, what did President James Madison do? He went to Congress, gave his war message, and the Congress voted to declare war. And at the time, in his discussion of the declaration of war, he referred to it as, quote, a solemn question which the Constitution widely confides, oh, pardon me, wisely confides to the legislative department of the government. So again, he's acknowledging his constitutional responsibilities. Well, the last uh, incident I, I want to make note of is, is very little known, but it involves an incident that in some way would be related to the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine had been laid out in 1830, uh, 1823, and the following year, Colombia began to fear an attack from France, and they appealed uh, they inquired of the United States government, citing the Monroe Doctrine. That, you know, after all, isn't this something that you would want to repel? They inquired of the American Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, who in effect composed the Monroe Doctrine. They asked the Colombian government asked him, in what manner the government of the United States intends to resist on its part 
any interference of the Holy Alliance for the purpose of subjugating the new republics or interfering in their political forms. And so at a cabinet meeting, this question was considered. In his diary, John Quincy Adams wrote the following. The Columbia Republic, to maintain its own independence, hope that France and the Holy Allies will not resort to force against it. If they should, the power to determine our resistance is in Congress. The movements of the executive will be as heretofore imp- expressed. I am to draft an answer. And he informed Columbia, quote, You understand that by the Constitution of the United States, the ultimate decision of this question belongs to the legislative department of the government. So in effect, I can't give you an answer. I don't know what the policy is. Okay, that, that would be something that would be decided by the legislature. Okay, I think that does it. So thank you very much. All right, everybody, that is another week of the Tom Wood Show. I hope to see you, Jekyll Island, Georgia, October 8th through the 10th for the Mises Institute Supporter Summit. That's 2020. We're still having that event, and it is going to be a fantastic time. Get the details at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org slash events, and I hope to see you there. I'll certainly see you back here on The Tom Woods Show next week. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.